Hey everybody, welcome to Friends Talking Nerdy. Before we begin the show proper here, we wanted to talk to you about another podcast. That podcast is called P&W Haunts and Homicides. The reason we wanted to bring that that show up is that within the next uh, couple of episodes here, the fine folks at P&W Haunts and Homicides will be joining us at Friends Talking Nerdy for a very special episode. Um, P&W Haunts and Homicides, if you're not aware, each week you would join Caitlin and Cassie as they chat about true crime the paranormal and all kinds of spooky shit in the pacific northwest just two normal-ish friends who wanted more local creepy stories so they never sleep or leave their houses again so to get an idea of what that show is about why not let caitlin and cassidy tell you themselves so sit back relax and listen to the host of pnw haunts and homicides talk about their show hey creepy people this is pnw haunts and homicides I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. We're just two normal-ish friends who wanted more creepy local stories. Our episodes start with a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on each topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. Come join us. We've got plenty of wine, laughs, and stories to share. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous as well as lesser-known true crime cases, like the murders in Tunnel 13 and Forest Park. As well as our spooky stories from Pike Place in the Oregon Vortex on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and many more. For all of you that are listening, if you have any true crime or paranormal stories that you want us to share... Maybe with the whole Pacific Northwest. They don't have to be from the Pacific Northwest if you would like to share. Email us at pnwhauntsandhomicides at gmail.com. It's all spelled out, no special characters. Last but certainly not least, head over to Patreon to support the show and we can provide even more creepy content. Have Have a a creepy creepy ass ass day. day! All right, thank you, Caitlin and Cassie. And as Ravishing Rick Rude would say, hit the music. If your friends are nerdy and you are nerdy, That noise makes it sound so official every time I hit that. It's like we are ready to go. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Friends Talking Nerdy. This is Tim Gilesman. Joining me, I have the greatest legal mind in the Pacific Northwest. It is Professor Aubrey. Hi, everybody. And we also have another special guest. We are doing an interview today, which I'm really excited for. Joining us is the managing editor of Daily Dead Central, among other publications, as well as the author of the book Monsters, Makeup and Effects, Volume 1, which is going to be available for sale the day this episode is released, October 20th, 2021. We are joined by Heather Wixon. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much again. No worries. Thank you uh, for for coming on our show. Uh, we 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 realize you have a lot bigger shows you have access to be able to uh, talk about your book on. So taking time out of your day to talk to us is very much appreciated. Oh gosh, I don't. I you know it's funny. I don't look at it that way. Like I just like talking to people. So if you guys have like five listeners, five hundred, whatever, I don't care. I'm in it for the good conversation. So I'm I'm all good on my end. <laughs> 
Well, that's what we're in it for too. So that that works out well. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, we gave up the dreams of money a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I did about 14 years ago when I started uh, working in this industry. So, you know, I get it. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Now, the first question we ask anybody who comes on this show is this, and keep in mind, there is no wrong answer. What is your nerd origin story? Gosh, so my nerd origin story, um, I would say... A lot of it has to do with um, growing up with my mom. Um, she was a single mom in the 80s. And so we didn't always have the luxury of having babysitters, um, you know, at our, at our disposal. So she basically would just kind of take me to movies all the time, like even as young as age three. And I think that's kind of where my love for movies in general started. Um, it's funny cause I, I had this really interesting conversation with her last year where I'd had this weird sort of recollection of seeing blazing saddles in, at a drive-in, but it didn't make sense because of the release date and my age. And I was like, gosh, that can't be right. And then I was talking to her and she's like, oh no, they did a re-release, um, at drive-ins. And she's like, I can't even believe you remember that because you weren't even like you were just three. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I totally remember that. Um, because I, it, it's just one of those movies that like I just remembered certain pictures from, uh -huh. and then you see them pop up, and you're like, oh my gosh, did I really see that that young? Um, and then from there, like I remember my very first horror movie that I can specifically remember seeing in theaters was American Werewolf in London, also at age three, um, and I, it was one of those situations where my mom was there with her best friend. And my mom's best friend is like really, really scared of horror movies. So she was like, oh, I think Heather's getting a little freaked out. I'm going to take her out, which I don't think I was. I think she was. <laughs> um, and so we played Pac-Man for like 45 minutes till the movie ended. Um, but my mom was always really cool about just kind of letting me watch whatever. There was only two movies in her house that were big no-nos, um, which is sort of funny because they're pretty tame in comparison. But one of them was The Exorcist because it had scared her so badly. Um, <laughs> And she kind of always reacts to that way towards like demonic horror. And then the other one was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is now in retrospect, it's like, there's really no blood in that movie. It's, it's more of a sensory uh, experience than anything. Um, but everything else was pretty much free reign. And so like, I was lucky enough to grow up a couple houses away from my best friend and her parents were really into like horror and sci-fi also. And so like, we were like, I was like five, she was six, and we were watching movies like The Thing and Alien and Salem's Lot is another one I always remember because we spent half the time watching the movie through like one of those old waffle blankets where you could kind of see through them. <laughs> um, so, it would, so I just like, those are sort of like my memories. And I guess I just got really hooked on everything um, at a really, really early age. And I was always like the weird kid um, who loved horror movies, who loved wrestling. So I was very much the weird kid to a lot of my friends because they didn't really know what to do with me. Um, and I was also the friend that most people didn't want to go over and play at their house because I had a Freddy Cougar poster in my room and everybody was scared of Freddy. Um, so nobody wanted to go to my house because <laughs> they didn't want to be near Freddy. <laughs> nice. Um, so when <clears throat> you just, you mentioned earlier that you have been in the industry for 14 years, 
Yes, indeed. It's, it's been, a, it's been a long time now. I can't, it's one of those, like, it feels like it, but then it doesn't because I just, every day just kind of feels like a, a new gift for me. But yeah, it's been, I started in August of 20, uh, 2007. And how did you get started? You know, I, it, it's sort of a, a strange story and I'll, I'll try to do the shorter version. Cause there's like a long version, which like, that could be like the whole podcast and nobody needs to hear me ramble that long. Um, but essentially it was around that time. I'd always grown up loving writing, um, specifically journalism. Like I was okay at creative writing, but I really, there was something about journalism that always appealed to me. Um, and it was something like even my teacher, I had a teacher in high school who I had her for English and I had her for our newspaper and other uh, humanities classes. And I think she sort of recognized my passion for it um, because she actually got me a few scholarships to go to journalism camp um, during the summer in high school, which was amazing. And it was like such a really fun and different experience. And that was over at like Ball State University in Indiana. And I'd always wanted to kind of follow it. And then as I was going through college, life circumstances sort of intervened and my mom wasn't able to continue to pay for my education. So I had to kind of plan B everything. And ultimately it was kind of like, okay, well I have to work. And so I started working like office jobs at 19 um, and just kind of trying to take care of things on my own. And then eventually just sort of settled into the normal life of, you know, I got married like pretty young you know, was just working the jobs that got the bills paid because, you know, we had to get, a, you know, had to buy a house and all these things. And I woke up one day and I just realized like so much of my life wasn't about me anymore. And not that everything has to be, but there was just, I was kind of feeling really lost and I didn't know what I wanted. And so I started like freelancing for a local newspaper in our neighborhood, um, doing just like regular articles and things like that. But, you know, there's only so many so many interesting ways you can talk about like park installations and new sidewalks coming in and things like that. And I remember I was sitting, um, I used to, cause I used to live in the suburbs of Chicago and I used to go to this convention there, uh, called flashback weekend. And I was sitting there and it was 2007 and it was the year that Adam green was there, uh, promoting hatchets. And he shared, he has a really great story about how Dee Snyder inspired him to follow his dreams when he was really young. And if you watch, I think it's like the hatchet Blu-ray. I think it has it on there. It might even be on the frozen Blu-ray as well. And I just remember sitting there thinking like, gosh, you know, it would be really amazing to be able to like write about horror because it was what, it was the one constant that I carried with me um, despite everything else. And so I was just kind of sitting there like, I need to do something. And right around the same time, my marriage was also kind of falling apart. So it was a really strange time for me because I was realizing I needed to move forward in a lot of different ways. And so basically I found this ad on Craigslist for this small website that was getting started um, called TerrorTube. And I reached out about doing some reviews um, and the owner, Fabian, he got back to me like really quickly. And then he was like, yeah, sure. You know, I can't pay you anything, but you know, let's do this. And I was like, sure, you know, it's my entry into all of this. Let's go. And it just sort of kind of happened from there. And then it was, you know, just kind of trying to find my own opportunities because back then I couldn't get access to studios or anything like that. I was also living in the Midwest. So it wasn't like everything. I, I didn't quite have the access I needed to any, you know, everything to do what I wanted to do. And 
So I just kind of kept at it. And then I would um, basically use my vacations to like do trips out here to LA to do press stuff. Like I would arrange interviews with people. One week a year, I was flying myself out here to do, to cover Screen Fest and things like that. Um, and one of the movies that I worked on for like doing behind the scenes stories for it ended up getting into Sundance in 2009. And I was like, I need to be there. Cause it's like the culmination of all this, these things that I've been writing about. And at that point, I'm in a full blown divorce. I'm working three jobs. I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I, uh, I used to do these jewelry parties and I was like, I'm just going to, I sold off all of my jewelry to these ladies that I worked with, which basically paid for my trip to Sundance. And because they weren't going to give me press credentials, so I had to just buy tickets and go. And while I was there, um, I heard from the previous editor of Dread Central, who was like, oh, are you at Sundance? Would you want to do some stuff for us? And that kind of opened the door. And then shortly after that, I ended up getting downsized at my regular day job. And, you know, at this point, my divorce is almost complete. I've got two houses that are basically going into foreclosure because of the housing crisis in 2008. Um, I don't know what to do. I have no job. And I was like, I I'm so lost. And I basically had a trip planned to come out here to LA just to visit friends for my birthday anyway. And in the meantime, I sent out some resumes, ended up landing like a regular office job, uh, came back home to Chicago, packed up everything in five days and moved out here, which I would never, ever do again in a million years, because it sounds bananas when I say that now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and it was just kind of like, you know, just getting in there and doing the work and just trying to find opportunities that not everybody else was, were getting or looking for and just trying to find stories. Cause I think ultimately that's always been the thing that has propelled me as a, as a writer is just wanting to tell people's stories um, because that's always been something that's been really important to me. So, and can you believe that is the short version of that story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds like there was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was kind of a, 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 a very uncertain time. But honestly, like, I joke about it now, because I think about that, like the, the whole thing of like coming home and moving in five days and like, packing up my entire life, because I'd never lived anywhere but Illinois. And I'm like, I joke about like not being able to do that now. But I'm like, oh, that was kind of, I, I did it with zero safety net. Like, I didn't have a place to live. I stayed with friends for a few weeks till I could find somewhere. And then ironically enough, um, a few months after I moved here, the school that I was working for lost one of their grants and let me and the other two new hires go. So then I was way back to square one and now I'm in LA, um, but it was really cool. I ended up getting to work at a special effects shop after that uh, for a few years, which is part of the sort of inspiration behind why I set out to do this, uh, this book series. Nice. Um, I, I'm a bit of a writer myself. And one thing I'd like to ask fellow writers is what is your writing process? Uh, lots of tears in the middle of the night. Um, a lot of anxiety and stress. Um, no, it's <laughs> all seriousness. Um, it's funny. I, I, when I was working on, on the book stuff, um, which I, when I'm doing like my regular day-to-day -day writing, like, you know, I'll throw on whatever, and I don't really minimize my distractions. Um, but I actually find when I'm writing, to put it, what I put on movies about writers in the background is sort of that noise. For some reason, it really helps focus me. And so basically when I go into book mode, like I, my phone is off, like I, I'm, I'm fully off so nobody can reach me. I don't check my emails because that's just another distraction. 
And I would say one of my favorite movies to write to is actually Salem's Lot because uh, it's good and long um, and it's got a really great score. It's about a writer, you know, basically going back to his hometown to uncover this evil. Um, and it's just sort of that perfect backdrop movie. So I, I wish I had something more intelligent. Um, but, you know, I, I would say like the one thing that I always try to do is whenever I'm doing any like anything is I always am trying to find an angle that maybe not everybody else is thinking about. Like, cause I, I always tell people like, if you're watching a movie, the devil is in the details, right? So mm. I will always try to like find like these little things that you know that a director or somebody involved with that production has put in there for something that fulfills them, um, but maybe might get overlooked in the grand scheme of things. And that's the kind of stuff like I'll kind of glom onto and want to talk about. Um, and I think for me, that's ultimately what keeps it fun for me is just being able to kind of like in my own way, still geek out with people. Um, because I think then when you do that, like they understand that like you appreciate those kind of things, that those sort of details that they're putting into their work, if that makes sense. Indeed, indeed. <clears throat> oh, I'm so sorry. I have a little frog in my throat. <laughs> oh goodness, that's okay. <clears throat> so given all that you've told us about your writing career, um, what would you, I mean, it sounds like you invested a lot of your own time and money and effort into exploring stories that you wanted to tell. Um, and I wonder if that's what you, if that's the advice you would give people who wanted to get into freelance writing about something they feel passionately about, or if you had any other tips. Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm sort of the exception to the rule in some cases, only because I don't, I would never tell people go throw thousands of dollars into a book series, which is what I've done essentially because I have to transcribe everything. And I originally had a book that came out in 2017 that's sort of tied to this series that I had to pay like an artist for. And, you know, you got to pay your editor and things like that. Um, there goes my little munchkin, um, you know, and so I definitely think there's smarter ways of doing it, but I also think you have to, you know, I, it, it's, it's like cost, it's like sort of like cost analysis, risk analysis kind of a situation where there's ways to go out and write a book and you don't have to spend a penny, you know, maybe you have to spend a little bit to like do artwork or something like that. Um, but I knew for this, like it was going to be sort of a, you know, it was going to take some resources um, and you have to sort of be prepared for that. And I think if you can plan for it, you know, then that's the way to do it. Like, cause I'll be honest, like I've already collected like over 80 interviews, but I don't have all of them transcribed yet because it does add up. And so like, it's mm -hmm. one of those, like every time when I, you know, pocket a little extra, I'm like, okay, now I can go and get like these two interviews taken care of and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, you know, I wouldn't say people have to like throw money into this to make it a career. But I do think if you're just starting out and you don't have really have any bylines, I know that there's sort of this backlash about working for free and I get it. I totally get it because everybody's time is worth money. But I think if you're just really starting out and you don't have a portfolio to show somebody like take six months to build that, build up, you know, examples that you can show people or just start, even just start your own site. 
because for me, like if somebody comes to me and they really want a break in terms of wanting to write, like write for us over at Daily Dead, if you don't have anything to show me, I don't know how to gauge whether or not the style is going to fit for our audience. Um, So that's why I tell people, like, even if, you know, I'm never going to look down on somebody who's writing for their own blog versus if somebody comes to me with a few big bylines, like, sure, those are great. And I'm, I'm appreciative. And that shows me that you've, you know, obviously impressed a certain level of professional in this industry. But ultimately, if I see the passion in somebody who's writing a blog, who gets 10 hits a month, but it's exceptional writing, I'm going to take a chance on that writer every single time. Um, Because to me, that's the kind of talent that can be nourished, that can be, you know, given a chance to grow as a writer and sort of as a person in this community. Because honestly, like I wouldn't be where I am if people didn't take chances with me. And I think most people don't understand that like you have to be willing to be open like that. Um, you know, again, it's one of those like, oh, would I love somebody, you know, who has a bunch of bylines at Rolling Stone? Oh, sure. But ultimately, like if, you know, you know, little Mikey Myers blog.com, you know, comes over and says, hey, you know, I'd love to do some stuff. Look at these things. And they blow me out of the water. That's where I'm going. Because to me, that's exciting. And I want to be able to give opportunities to new voices because we, you know, we need them. I'm getting old. I, you know, I don't know how much longer I can keep up with it. <laughs> so you got to be, you know, you have to, I don't remember where I saw, but I, I, I just saw something where somebody talked about holding the door open for people instead of keeping it closed. Um, and I think so often in this industry, because there is sort of this competitive edge, people tend to want to hold that door closed. Um, and I've never been that person. And you can talk to a lot of people that have come to me sometimes for like advice, sometimes to get like information on how to get connected with certain, you know, publicists and things like that. Or maybe if I've made a connection, you know, with somebody directly, you know, if I trust this person, like I will never tell them no, if I can do something to help them, to help them further their career, like I'm going to do that because somebody did it for me. And that's what we should all be doing. You know, we're all in this together. You know, we're all coming at it from different angles. You know, we're all doing our own thing. You know, we may all be talking about horror, but none of us are doing it exactly the same way. Indeed, indeed. Now, speaking of horror, um, you mentioned growing up, um, having a parent that allowed you to be able to watch those movies. Thinking back, what do you think attracted you to horror? You know, I think it's because I always, I always felt like the odd kid out anyway, because I grew up in a trailer park um, in the unincorporated part of Des Plaines. And we, um, we were bussed in to a very wealthy, na- well, not a wealthy, like not a very wealthy neighborhood, but a really nice neighborhood for our schools. And so it was like, it was one of those situations where like parents actively were always trying to get us rezoned. So we didn't come to their school. So we always were kind of outcasts as it was. Like I had friends who I went to school with who weren't allowed to come to my birthday parties because of where I lived. And so I always felt like I was on the outside looking in. And then of course my interests didn't help either. Um, But I just always, you know, I always felt like the outcast. And I think one of the times where I, I kind of, it really clicked for me, like what outcasts were was I, I remember being homesick one day and we had these really great stations back when I was a kid in Chicago that would always play a lot of old movies and stuff, uh, Channel 50 and Channel 66. 
uh, which is how I got introduced to like Elvira and Stanguli and things like that. But I remember being homesick one day. I think it was actually when I was home with chicken pox in like first grade and Carrie was on and just seeing the way like she was treated. Like I, I just felt like this like connection. Um, I couldn't tell why, cause like I was so little, but I, I just felt really bad for her, mm-hmm. even though she's supposed to be the villain, she's not. And I just remember thinking like, oh, you know, wow. I, you know, she's kind of like me because like, we'd always get laughed at because, you know, we weren't as fa- you know, we didn't dress as fancy as a lot of the kids we went to school with. We didn't always have like, you know, the Nintendos and like the really, you know, expensive things like that. Like, you know, a lot of our parents were just doing the best that they could to raise us right. And I, I do remember just sitting there thinking like, wow, she's, you know, she gets made fun of just like I, you know, we get made fun of. Um, and I think for me, I think it was just like, I, I guess I've already always sort of taken the empathy route with horror without even realizing it probably until like the last decade. Um, I'd like to say that I was that smart as a kid, but I wasn't, <laughs> it was just more like, you know, I wanted to be in the monster squad because they were cool and they liked monsters. Um, but now as an adult, I see it and I'm like, well, that's because, you know, they had to kind of make their own group to kind of, you know, have a community that felt like they belonged to, um, you know, and I think that was just one of the biggest reasons that really, you know, the reason that horror spoke to me so deeply because it was all about misfits and you know and a lot of that was always through like creatures and characters and things like that um and I think that's ultimately like why it's probably resonated with me because you know I would say until I came out here like I just never quite felt like I fit into the life I was in um until I really got to sort of just find my own path and um so if you don't mind, we would love <laughs> to put you on the spot to okay. share with us five of your, say your top five horror movies that you would recommend for someone who hasn't watched horror movies. Because I have never really watched horror movies. And one of the things that we're doing here on the show it for um, the Halloween season is introducing me to horror movies. So I've seen Scream now and the 1998 version of Psycho. Oh my gosh, that's so that's so exciting for you that you ha- like to be like I know I just want to sit with you and watch movies. <laughs> <laughs> that's I know, so exciting. Right? It's been it's been really fun, but um, I would love to get your recommendations. And we do a thing on the show called the Nerdy Five. Okay. So- think of five we can do a nerdy five of heather wixon's favorite um horror movies okay so i would say first and foremost if you if you want to introduce people because like everyone's going to kind of go to some of the more contemporary stuff um and they're going to go for the bigger stuff so i would say my first recommendation would uh, would be to go and find in screen factory just put this out on blu-ray it might have been late last year could have been early this year i have zero time a sense of time anymore um, but they, right. it, was, it was, yeah, I know. Right. Like I was talking about something and I was like, did we do this last week or was that last month? I can't remember anymore. Um, I have such pandemic brain. I yeah. would say my first recommendation would be, there's this movie that came out in 1984 called tyranny Isles. And what it is, it's a, it's basically like a movie clip presentation where it's hosted by Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen. 
And it goes through like all these classic horror movies and thrillers and things like that. And for me, when I was a kid, I discovered this movie very, like, I think I was like seven and that was it. That was my starting point to really my education, because what I would do is the, the cover art for it is a skull. But if you look closer at it, it's like all these little movie titles. And so when I was a kid and I would go to the video store, I would go and I would look at the cover of Tyranny Isles. And I would like try to find the different movie titles and then try to find them in my video store. And so that to me was like, it kind of became like my Bible as a kid. Um, It also meant I was renting like really extreme movies like Vice Squad at like age eight, which I don't recommend. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it also gave me a life scarring experience with Suspiria at the same age. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. (laughs) So, but that one for me, I think because it really goes into this whole gamut of, of, of what horror is, or they call, you know, they call them terror films in there. Um, and it just, it, that for me was like, I was obsessed with it. Like I was constantly watching it, constantly renting movies because of that movie, that movie. Um, and it also has Donald Pleasant saying werewolf in the most adorable way ever. <laughs> um, so that's like my, that would be my first recommendation. Okay. And then, yeah. And then I think for my second, if I wanted to like ease somebody into it without pushing it too far, um, my next one would be Tremors, which isn't typical horror. It's more horror comedy. Um, but what I love about it is that it's, it's really, it's such a great movie with great characters, fantastic action set pieces, some of the most incredible special effects you'll ever see. Um, that were done practically by Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr. of Studio ADI. Um, that it just, I remember as a kid thinking I like, I just had stumbled across like the newest, greatest thing ever. And I couldn't believe that the movie didn't do well. And I still don't. I'm like, how, did, how do you sleep on this movie? It's, it's perfect, um, which is ironic because it takes place in perfection, Nevada. Uh, but what's great about it is that it really, it's, it's almost like I'd say 80% of the movie takes place during the day. So if you're not somebody who wants, if you want to ease into it, it's a really, really good one. Um, that doesn't really pander or talk down to people. Um, it's just, it's pure joy. Like it really is from, from start to finish. Um, it's, it's one of our absolute favorites in our house. And I just, you know, I always tell people, especially parents, if they're looking for like their kids and they're looking for sort of those transitional movies where they're kind of moving away from like the Hotel Transylvanias and the Monster House movies and want to go and watch something a little more grown up. Tremors is like a great movie because it works for everybody. Um, and we watch it a lot in this house. Uh, it's, it's one of our favorite franchises. So that's definitely another one that I would always recommend. And then, you know, I'm, I'm such... I am such a hardcore Stephen King like adaptation fan. And one of my very favorites, one of my favorite things about King in general is just the way he was always able to sort of capture small town communities and sort of the fear that can come over these, these places that should otherwise feel untouchable because of just how close they are and the, the, the love and the connection that the community has. Um, and so growing up, I would say, back then like my favorite Stephen King movie ever was always Silver Bullet um, which is a werewolf movie with Corey Haim and Gary Busey and Everett McGill Um, and it is I love it so much like the werewolf itself isn't great 
Um, and, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, not in a way that's distracting. Like if you're going to watch something like Howling 2, which has like, basically uh, the studio sent them uh, ape suits from one of the uh, Planet of the Apes movies for werewolf suits. So they had to kind of make that work. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of, kind of bananas. Um, so, but to me, Silver Bullet is like the epitome of what I, everything I love in a Stephen King movie. Um, plus it has a really good heart. It, it's actually, I would say my favorite performance from Corey Haim of all time. Um, he's just so good in it. And his, he has a really great relationship um, with his, the character, uh, the girl Megan follows who plays a sister in the movie um, and Gary Busey. It's like right before Gary Busey went full Gary Busey. So you get him really showing you like what a fantastic actor he was in his heyday. Um, and to me, that's always been a, a really special movie that I watch a lot. And it works really well in October too, because it culminates on Halloween. Oh, nice. So yeah, so it actually takes you through the whole gamut of like holidays, like it's spring, it's summer, and then it goes right into fall. And it's just like, it's perfect because it just ends right on Halloween. So, um, so that would be another one I would recommend. And then uh, I love that you watch screen, by the way, we, we should, you should tell me what you thought about that as soon as I finished rambling on. But um, I would say for those who, I mean, every, I feel like everybody, when he stopped. I feel like everybody knows about like Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street, like the, the OG. So I think what I would do is I would recommend wow. New Nightmare um, because wow. that's that me. Oh, it's so good. And it's really the precursor to Scream, um, which audiences weren't quite ready for at that time. And I do think it's, it was nice to see Freddy scary again. Um, I loved seeing Heather Langenkamp being showcased the way that she was in that film. Um, and there's just some really fantastic moments and everybody kind of like jokes about goth Freddy in it. Cause he has like doc Martens on and black leather pants. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually love the way he looks in the movie. So that's also a huge favorite of mine as well. Um, and I think that's where you kind of get like the scary territory. And then, gosh, what would be my, my fifth? Is that third or fourth? That was, that was your fourth. Okay, cool. I thought so. I'm like, oh gosh, what would be my fifth? It's like, I'm trying to not do something that's super basic that I feel like everybody kind of knows, you know, one thing I would recommend, um, you know, if they haven't seen it, another, it's one of those, again, it's like horror comedy, but I think it leans a little more into the horror. Um, but it also feels like it's, it's a movie that felt of its time, but also felt like it was Harkening back to like the old Universal Monster Days, um, which is Tom Holland's Fright Night, the original. Um, because for me, it was one of the first times I can really remember seeing vampires being uh, shown in stages of transformation or existence, which I thought was really different. Um, and it's got some really great creature effects, fantastic performances from everybody in that movie. Um, like I absolutely loved Charlie Brewster as a kid. Um, and again, it was a situation where his character was, you know, basically was living in a home uh, with his single mom. And so I think that was another reason that that one sort of connected with me big time. Um, but it's, it's just the script is perfect. Absolutely wonderful performances, especially Roddy McDowell, who was a huge favorite of mine uh, growing up. Um, William Ragsdale is fantastic. Chris Randon is probably one of the best, if not the best vampire to come out of the 80s that might be 
a controversial statement. I'm not sure, um, but he's really good in it. Um, and to me, I think it's a perfect movie. Um, awesome. That is so great. I have made the list and we <laughs> will post, we'll post that list up on with the show notes <clears throat> so people can see those recommendations that you made. Cool. So what did you think of Scream seeing it for the first time? So I actually liked it pretty well. I didn't think it was too terribly scary. It was a little gory. Um, Definitely gory, yeah. <laughs> and well, I felt I, I thought it was a good time. Yeah, I felt it was. I felt that was the perfect kind of entryway because of the humor aspect of it, and because um, you know Kevin Williamson was very intentional with the meta humor, kind of poking fun at um, some of the cliches of horror at the time. Because I think you would agree, horror at that time was a little on the stale side, Heather, right? Yeah, I mean, really, when you think about '90s horror, like I try to think of like sort of these touchstones. And it's like, you have like Candyman in 92, you have New Nightmare in 94. And then really it was, for me, nothing super exciting happened until Scream in 96. Like we had a few good movies here or there, but oh, actually I shouldn't say that because then I'm, then I'm being mean to Demon Knight and there is Demon Knight in there. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I do think in terms of sort of those big moments in horror, like there just weren't a lot of them in the 90s. Um, so Scream was like a revelation when I saw it. In fact, it's funny because I mentioned how I, my mom watched horror movies with me all the time as a kid. So I thought like, oh, I actually moved my finals uh, my freshman year of college so I could get home just in time for the Thursday night sneak preview of Scream because I was like, well, there's no way I'm missing this. So I actually talked my teacher into, I, had a, I was supposed to have a final on Friday and I asked if I could come do it on Thursday morning so I could get home um, for Christmas break early. And I remember seeing it that Thursday night. And then we, my, me and my ex, we took my mom to see it on Friday. Cause I was like, you know, it's horror. I figured she'd enjoy it. And like the look of horror on her face the entire time. <laughs> I've never miscalculated anything so poorly in my life because she just looked at me after and she's like, that was terrible. And I just realized like, oh, I'm the age of the character she's watching in this movie doing all these things. Of course, she doesn't want to go see a movie like that because now she's going to be thinking that I'm out there doing these things <laughs> and being caught up in all this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. So that was, you know, that was a, a misstep on my part. Um, but it was funny because that screening in particular, there was a group of ladies behind us who were so into it in listening to them react to it. Like I love watching other people watch movies that I've seen to be really honest. And mm. that sounds really dumb, but I actually get such a kick out of that. And so hearing them reacting to the movie made me love it more the second time. So nice. Now, um, New Nightmare is probably one of my favorite uh, Wes Craven films, and um, I'm glad you brought up Heather uh, Loggenkamp's performance, because going all the way back to A Nightmare on Elm Street, um, she kind of broke the mold for women in horror in a lot of ways, so I wanted your opinion here. How do you feel women are portrayed in horror movies today compared to the past, and how can that portrayal be better? You know, I think it's a lot better these days because I think in most cases you have a lot of filmmakers who are extremely conscientious of sort of that double-edged sword of women in horror, especially in the 80s and the 90s, because, you know, part of it was empowering because you had women who were fighting back 
and, you know, doing these incredible things. But then you also had women who were being portrayed as bimbos or just, you know, basically there's eye candy, you know, focusing on the nudity as much as possible, things like that. Um, you know, so it was the eighties are a really interesting time when you look back at it, because part of it is like, Oh heck yeah. Like women were fighting back. And then it's like, Oh, but they're half naked while they're doing it. Okay. Um, and you're like, well, how empowering can that really be? Um, and I think it just depends on how those actresses per, like sort of approached it or how they personally felt about it. But I think for me, which is what is interesting, I'm really glad you mentioned that how Nancy was a standout as I've always really, you know, everybody talks about Laurie Strode being sort of this first final girl. And I mean, no disrespect to the queen, Jamie Lee Curtis, when I say this, but Laurie is not a very proactive character in the original Halloween. She just isn't. And it's even worse in Halloween too. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's, she's not, there's no, there's, she's just trying to survive she's not actively really trying to you know like she's she's only fighting because she has to where nancy kind of comes at freddie full on and it's like it's like we've been watching the original halloween a lot this month because amc's on all the time and things like that and we were getting ready for halloween kills and stuff mm-hmm. um and you know the thing about Lori is she acts really naturally in response to everything that's happening to her she's terrified you know, she's hiding, she's, you know, she's on defense the entire time. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, Nancy was playing offense in that, that finale of Nightmare on Elm Street, where she was done. Like Freddie had just taken away, you know, all of her friends from her. You know, she has a mother who's completely checked out because of her own alcohol issues. She has a dad who thinks he's, he's doing things right, but he's so emotionally, you know, detached from her. So she's on her own. So she's not hiding in a closet with a hanger waiting to jab Freddie. She's setting booby traps in her house. Like she's ready to light him on fire and send him back to hell, essentially. Um, and I think for me, that's why I always love Nancy. And I think to me, Nancy is sort of the final girl because of how proactive she was like she she changed the game I think in a lot of ways and you know and again I don't mean any disrespect to Jamie Lee Curtis it's not what I'm saying at all but I think if you look at the portrayal of her character in those first two Halloween movies I mean they're fantastic performances from Jamie but ultimately there's not much that she's really doing and it's even less so in Halloween too where she's basically in a hospital bed for like 75% of that movie and then ultimately it's once again Loomis who has to blow up Michael. Um, so for me, like Nancy was it. Like, and especially considering the actress had my name, like that was the that was even cooler when <laughs> I was growing up. Yeah, totally. But yeah, I think it's better these days. Like if you look at something like um sci-fi just premiered um Slumber Party Massacre remake uh this weekend, and it's actually gonna be on digital really soon. I think it's like in a in a couple of days, like it's this week. Um, and I highly recommend, recommend people to check it out. Like the original Slumber Party Massacre is a, is fantastic. It's one of the first sort of feminist slashers really made, um, that, you know, it doesn't get enough credit for that. Um, but what I love about, uh, Danishka, who's the director of the new one, she, there's no secret that when Amy Holden Jones, uh, and Rita Mae Brown set out to do the original Slumber Party Massacre, they wanted to do a straight up horror comedy. And Roger Corman asked them to sort of dial it back. So they sort of snuck in, 
these little touchstones that have kind of turned it into what it's become in terms of, you know, keeping sort of that feminist spirit alive and doing as much comedy or kind of, you know, giving the proverbial like, you know, middle finger to, you know, basically what slashers were doing at that time. Um, what I love about the new Slumber Party Massacre is that not only does it really turn all of that on its head, but it also feels very much more in line uh, with that initial vision that um, Amy and Rita had with their film also. Um, and I highly recommend it because it's, it's so fun. It's got some really fantastic kills. The characters are amazing um, and some really supremely clever twists. And I will say probably the best shower scene I've seen in a horror movie in like the last 20 years. Nice. Wow. And, and, and you might think you know what that means, but you don't. <laughs> so I'll just leave it at that. But it's great. And I do recommend anybody check it out. Because again, it's one of those, I think, especially if you're not super into like hardcore horror, um, there's just enough to like keep you entertained there, but it's not going to be like, a super like heavy experience. Like if I'm like, Hey, go watch hereditary or something. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That sounds like a great movie. I'll have to check that one out for sure. Definitely. If you ever get a chance to watch the original or its sequel, uh, they're fantastic. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing <clears throat> about your background and your perspectives on things. I would love to turn to talk about the book now um, and I guess my first question would be from your perspective, what do you think your book brings that's unique or why should people read your book? You know, I ask myself that every day for the last <laughs> five and a half years that I've been doing this. Uh, no, I thank you. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of the reasons I set out to do this um, is because there really, there have been so many books about makeup effects in creatures and characters and things like that over the years but so many of those I would say all of those really uh came at it from the perspective of the create of sort of the how-to or the process of creating special effects and they sort of overlooked the raw talent behind them and but you know those books are more functional they're they're meant for special effects artists to be able to be like oh i want to make a goblin let me look at this and here we go this is how you do that and it was several years ago i was i, I every couple of years i would do this thing called stan winston week where i would take a time to like sort of pay tribute to um all the great work that came out of stan winston's studio over the years and the last year that i did it i actually started to really talk like dig in with folks about like who Stan was as a person because it just had sort of dawned on me that like I've been writing about all these movies and stuff and I kind of heard stories here and there about it but I never I didn't know much about why he was such a presence and why he was you know Stan Winston and I'm gonna cough here a second <coughs> pardon me mm, no and you know so I started you know just asking people questions and I started hearing these really amazing stories you know because everybody would always say like, oh, Stan was the businessman, but like, you know, he was so much more than that. Like, I, I remember when I was interviewing Howard Berger and we were sitting there talking and Howard was, was mentioning, like when he was a kid, one of the first places, like he knew he wanted to create, you know, monsters and things like that. And he found Stan shop and Stan shop was like a couple miles from his house. And so he called them up and asked if he could come visit and Stan let this kid come in and walk around the shop. And Howard was totally in love like he that he knew that was where he wanted to be and Stan recognized that this kid had passion 
And he said, like, you know, I'll let you come visit, but every time you do, you have to bring me your report card because I want to make sure you're staying up on your grades, you know? And to me, I was like, I, that, that was just like a, such an interesting story. Cause I was like, I've never heard this before. And I just began to realize like so many times when people talk to these artists, they don't ever ask them like about their lives or their journeys or their experiences or the influences that they had, like in terms of some of the work that they've done. Um, and I just realized me as being somebody who loves sort of the history of movies, um, that this is sort of one aspect of that, that like, if we don't get these conversations, like that history's lost. Um, and that's been the heartbreaking thing about the process too, is because there have been missed opportunities along the way. I've had people who I was in contact with to do interviews who have passed away in the meantime. Um, you know, sometimes suddenly, sometimes not. And for me, that makes me sad because that's, that's somebody who should be celebrated, but ultimately, you know, so many of their stories and their legacy will never be fulfilled, you know, to where it, it could have been. Um, so that's been trying to sort of work on ways of doing that. Like one of the artists I had reached out to initially, like way back in 2016 was John Carl Beekler. Um, just because his name was coming up a lot in interviews that I was doing because he was a guy who was always giving everybody their shot in the industry and everybody talked to talked about how generous he was how open he was to new talent and that most of them probably would have never gotten a start in the industry had it not been for him mm -hmm. and I didn't realize at the time when I was reaching out for interviews that he was really sick mm -hmm. and because it wasn't really public knowledge at that point um, and so it was kind of heartbreaking when we lost him a few years ago, because I realized, you know, John may not have been a Rick Baker level of artistry. He may not have been the powerhouse of Stan Winston, but the contributions that he had to this industry were extraordinary and were so worth celebrating too. And it was really made me sad that like he was gone. And so that's one of the things I was really grateful for, like for book two, I was able to put together a tribute for him. So I'm breaking some of my rules in the future books because there were just some people that I, I just wanted to make sure that they had a chance to kind of get their moment. Uh, but he was one, especially where I just realized, like, if I did this whole series and never talked about him in any capacity, um, separate from when he gets mentioned in other interviews, like I would have just felt really terrible as a fan because he deserved that much. So... Um, but ultimately, I, you know, I want people to come away from this and just realizing that, you know, sometimes life is going to feel like it's impossible and there might be things that you're dreaming of that are going to feel impossible. But, you know, I've got 83 stories that prove, prove, you know, prove contrary to that, that prove that like, you know, some kid from a, from a community in Montana of 174 people can make it in Hollywood. And so if there's something out there that you want to do, and if you're really passionate about it, you know, you're going to find a way and you should find a way, you know, and just, you know, I just want people to come away and realize like, these are some really fantastic people behind all of these things who gave up a lot in a lot of cases, a lot of, you know, a lot of time, you know, a, ex experienced a lot of sleep deprivation back in the day, you know, really put themselves on the line, you know, time and time again to basically create these things that are the reason we fell in love you know with movies in the first place nice um which I, I should ask what is your favorite story in the book 
Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I don't even know if I can, I can really pare it down that much because there's so many favorite things that have come out of this whole journey for me. What's the first one that comes to mind? Special for different reasons. I would say I, I geeked out big time when I was finally able to talk to Tom Berman. Um, just because I grew up loving Planet of the Apes. And then I didn't even realize like how much he had been involved um, with the CIA and with John Chambers and everything back in the day, um, which is basically like the story of Argo, the movie. Um, and I, I didn't realize that at the time. Like I just, I, I knew John Chambers was, but I didn't realize that Tom was, you know, pretty much an essential element in that story as well. Um, so for me, it's like a history, like kind of a, from a historical perspective, that was pretty cool. Um, and then I also like one of my favorite stories, like from Tony Gardner, um, who runs Alterian Studios, um, who these days, he's basically the guy who handles all the Chucky effects. And he's been doing that since Seed of Chucky. Um, one of my favorite stories is like how he would, and this will show you how good uh, studio security was back in the day, but he would dress up in like a red hoodie and he had a bike with like a, a milk crate on it. And he had created his own E.T. doll or like E.T., you know, creature mm -hmm. and wrapped it up in a blanket and stuck it on this bike. And he would literally just ride onto the Universal lot because they thought he worked there. And so he would go and just drive right onto the lot. And he was like in looking for Spielberg because he wanted to talk to Spielberg. And he got close a few times because he said one time he actually ended up in his office and he was like, oh, there's like some kid there playing video games or whatever. And it turned out to be Zach Galligan, who was in between uh, scenes for Gremlins. So he got <laughs> close. Um, but to me, like that just sort of shows the tenacity behind all of it. You know, that there's, you know, there's the more prim and proper channels you can go through. But or, you know, you could dress up like Elliot and go ride your bike on the universe a lot and see what happens, too. So <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Um, right. That brings up what's probably um, a question to wrap up the, our time here, which is when you were doing all of these interviews, um, you've talked a little bit about how it made you appreciate history um, and the tenacity of movie making. Uh, what other things did the interviewing, uh, meeting the people you met and, and what you learned from them in the interviews make you appreciate about the art of making movies? You know, I, I think it, what's interesting to me is that ultimately special effects, it's, you know, it's kind of like a, you're, you're fulfilling a service when you're working in, as an artist in, in special effects, because ultimately you're delivering a product you know, to somebody. So you ultimately you're serving somebody else's vision. But for me, I always loved hearing about how people would be able to sort of incorporate their own little touches to things and things that they would get away with. Um, and just, you know, sometimes like people, you know, had to come up with like something amazing from nothing. Um, one of the, one of the most eye-opening interviews, um, and this is, this is true for anybody who worked on trauma movies in the eighties. And it's probably true for anybody who's working on trauma movies now. But, um, one of the interviews I did was with Jennifer Aspinall who created, uh, Toxie, the toxic Avenger yes. and her budget was $200 for that entire movie. Mm. <laughs> and that included creating a character. 
Mm-hmm. Like, how do you do that? Even by 80 standards, you know, I mean, that would be like somebody today saying like, create a character for a thousand dollars. Like what? Like, and so you have to be really innovative and you have to really be prepared to think outside the box. And I think in a lot of ways going through this, it really prepared me to, in my own ways, be ready to always kind of think outside the box when I have to, um, you know, I'm not creating special effects, but like a lot of times when I'm writing, I'm, I'm always trying to do something a little different if I can. Um, and I think also too, what it, what I really came away with was just an appreciation for all the different sort of facets of the industry, because I think when people think special effects, they think it's just sort of this one thing, but there's so many different roles that go into this field where it's like, you've got mold makers, you've got people who are running foam, you've got, you know, modelers, you've got sculptors, you've got just overall character designers who may not even ever touch materials. They might just be sketching, Um, you know, or these days, creating characters in a computer. Um, You know, you've got people who are, you know, key makeup artists who are handling all of sort of the primary people, you know, their little gash wounds and things like that on set. You know, then you've got people who are animatronic technicians and things like that. Like, I think for me, like I came in it with a very basic understanding of what the industry was. And what I've been so grateful for is coming through all of this with such a deeper understanding of what these people go through. Like I've learned so much about like all the things that people go through just to get considered for an Oscar. Like it's ridiculous. Some of the stuff that they have to do. Um, And it's ridiculous. Some of the stuff that gets overlooked because of politics. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was really fascinating. Just learning that whole thing. And honestly, I didn't even realize that back in the eighties, that the only reason they ended up adding a makeup and hair uh oscar was because of rick baker and stan winston specifically going out there and going to the academy and being like we need to start recognizing people for this kind of work and so i thought that was kind of cool like i just you know it's one of those like i I, like i went in thinking like oh i know about all this stuff and then i realized like very quickly i'm like no and so i just became like a sponge i wanted to learn as much as i could um you know and maybe sometimes that meant i was talking to people a little too long about things, but honestly, like as a fan, like I just came away with such a deeper appreciation for the things that people would do, you know, the, the level of innovation, the, the sacrifices a lot of them would make, you know, just to do this kind of work. Um, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. And I think, you know, I think there's shows that have come or come, come along like face off that sort of give people a very unrealistic idea of what, this world is really like, and I like, I like face off because it's a gateway for a lot of people into this world, but it's not an accurate depiction. So I'm hoping if nothing else, like if somebody comes into this and they read, you know, a few chapters that they just understand, like, you know, for a lot of these folks, like this was, you know, some of us, we write, some of us, we paint, Um, you know, this is their way of being creative too, even if they're sort of sometimes beholden to somebody else's vision, like they're still, doing things on their own terms in some ways. Um, and I think for me, that's always like the fun things like you see, like, especially if you look at like the characters from the Monster Squad, and, like just like they had to do these little tweaks just because they couldn't quite be exactly like the Universal Monsters. And so, you know, just kind of seeing like how people approach stuff like that. Like, you know, honestly, I, I never expected to have come out of this having such a, a great understanding 
of what this world really is. Like I thought I knew it. And then I realized about six to eight months into this process that I knew nothing. <laughs> so, and maybe I know about 50% now, but at least, you know, if nothing else, like there's a lot of amazing people out there who are going to get to be able to, sh- to share their stories with the world. And ultimately that's what's the most important thing to me. Well, we thank you for your time today, Heather, in um, talking about Monsters, Makeup, and Effects, uh, Volume 1. Um, do you want to let our audience know um, when uh, this book is for, when the book is for sale on Wednesday, where they're going to be able to purchase it? Absolutely. Uh, so you can head over to aminkpublishing.com. Uh, and if you click over under the, there's like a dark ink section and that's where I pop up. Um, I'm actually right underneath uh, Kane Hodder. They're doing a re-release of Kane Hodder's book, which I thought was pretty cool. So I'm sharing some, uh, some page space with Kane Hodder, which is pretty awesome. Nice. And um, so you can find it there. Um, and then it's also going to be on Amazon as well. And I found out that apparently it's also, uh, you could order it off of Target's website as well, which uh, that's a first for me. I'm not even sure if it, like, I don't, I haven't even looked at like Barnes and Nobles and things like that yet, um, which I probably should, but I've never, like my first book that I put out was never in there. So I just kind of assumed it wouldn't be, mm-hmm. um, but it may be. So I, I have to look, <laughs> I'm well, so behind at everything. <laughs> <laughs> just go around um, finding your book on the internet in various places like Easter eggs. <laughs> I, I think that might be how I spend my night on, on Wednesday night to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, where can we find you on social media? Uh, honestly, the only place I'm really at these days is I'm over on Twitter. Um, and you can find me over there at the horror chick. And then we also have uh, an account set up for the book as well, which is um, at M-M-E-F-X book. Uh, so you can kind of follow along over there. And then we'll be doing some fun stuff to promote that. And um, we do have a signing coming up in Burbank, California on November 6th. Um, and so far... Uh, it looks like it's going to be myself and V Neal will be there. Um, I'm hoping a few other people can make it out, but everybody's been really busy since everything opened back up. So I, I have to be happy for them in that regard, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I want people out there working and, and thriving, but ultimately I'm like, oh, it'd be fun to have you at the signing too. And I know some folks are a little concerned with like COVID protocols and stuff too, but um, I just uh, signing at Dell's uh, last month and it was like, the safest most like best experience I've had because nobody could touch you and it was just really great I was like oh this is how it should always be so um but that's coming up November 6th as well so I'm really grateful that they were willing to uh give us a a chance to come out and celebrate the book there as well perfect well thank you once again for being on the show and for everybody listening we definitely encourage you to uh, head to our show notes find the links to uh the books that uh Heather mentioned and buy it how about that? Thank you guys. <laughs> no worries. So thank you again for being on the show and, and uh, thank you all for listening. We'll bid you adieu. And good night. <laughs> Subscribe to Friends Talking Nerdy on iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, as well as Spotify. Remember to support Friends Talking Nerdy on Patreon. Goodbye, darling. <laughs>